Welcome to the third episode of Impact Medicom's podcast series on immunotherapy in head and neck squamous cell carcinomas. In this episode, hosted by Impact Medicom's Sarah Doucette, we welcome Dr. Martin Smorajewicz, medical oncologist at the Odette Cancer Centre in Toronto, Ontario. This episode discusses the medical oncologist's role in managing patients with head and neck squamous cell carcinomas and how immunotherapies fit into their practice. Hope you enjoy it. Hello, listeners. To finish off our series on immunotherapy in head and neck squamous cell carcinomas, our guest, Dr. Martin Smorajewicz, will be sharing a medical oncologist's perspective on the topic. So welcome, Martin. Hi, thanks very much for having me. Pleasure to be here. So can you start us off by telling us a bit about your interests as a medical oncologist? Yeah, so I'm a uh, medical oncologist practicing here at the Odette Cancer Center at the uh, Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center. And um, my practice is about half focused on genital urinary cancers and the other half in head and neck cancers. And my interests really are in uh, clinical trials and really bringing you know, therapeutic options to patients in, in clinic and uh, with a specific interest really in, in immunotherapy-based therapeutics. And how has your approach in managing head and neck cancers evolved since immunotherapies have become available? Well, you know, immunotherapy really has changed the landscape uh, treatment options for in, in many different cancers, and, and head and neck is really no exception. When I started practice and, uh, you know, started treating head and neck patients, we had just had approval of uh, nivolumab in the second line setting for patients with head and neck cancer that had progressed after previous uh, platinum-based chemotherapy or relapsed within six months of chemoradiation. And, you know, the results of uh, Checkmate 141 were, you know, exciting. They had shown an overall survival benefit compared to some, you know, the alternative chemotherapy agents used in that trial. And uh, indeed, you know, nivolumab can work very well in some patients. Uh, there's probably about a 15% response rate. And, I, you know, I certainly have patients in my practice that have responded very favorably for, you know, prolonged periods of time. But in most patients, it's actually not effective. And the other problem is that, uh, you know, there's a significant proportion of patients who are just too unwell to receive nivolumab after they've progressed on first-line chemotherapy. And so for this reason, it was very exciting to see the Keynote 48 results a few years ago now, which the trial evaluated pembrolizumab with or without chemotherapy in the first-line setting for patients with head and neck squamous cell carcinomas. And you know this showed an overall survival benefit compared to the comparator arm, which was a chemotherapy plus cetuximab. So this led to you know, the approval of pembrolizumab plus chemo in the first-line setting, irrespective of the cps pdl one status, but also the approval of pembrolizumab as monotherapy in patients with uh, cps pdl one greater than uh, 1. So this was uh, really an important development for our patients to have access to the immunotherapy much earlier in their disease course and probably overall you know, increased access to these patients. You know, after about a year or so of using pembrolizumab in the first line setting, I, you know, I find it very nice to see how sometimes you can achieve very deep and durable responses to the pembrolizumab that was given either with or without chemotherapy. But, you know, there's certainly a significant proportion of patients that just don't respond and there's a lot more work to be done for these patients. So managing these patients, it's really important to have a multidisciplinary approach. And that's important for a number of tumor sites. Can you discuss how it's important for the treatment of head and neck squamous cell carcinoma? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, it's it's one of the disciplines that requires really a very good uh, functioning multidisciplinary team to deliver, you know, the highest uh, care possible. And uh, really, as a medical oncologist, we're, we're involved uh, often uh, quite early in, in the patient's journey. And we work very closely with the surgeons and the radiation oncologists. You know, our, our involvement often starts at, uh, you know, the initial presentation of the patient. Uh, often present, you know, often these patients present with locally advanced disease where they require, you know, chemotherapy and radiation or potentially post-operative chemotherapy and radiation. But unfortunately, of course, a fair amount of these patients were, will relapse. And at the time of relapse, we work very closely with our surgeons to figure out whether we need to get additional biopsies, you know, to confirm a relapse or, or for biomarkers. And also with our radiation oncology colleagues for trying to determine whether additional radiation may be required for symptom control and, and ultimately also to help with some of the complications that arise from some of the previous treatments. So, you know, really important to have close communication with our surgeons, our radiation oncologists, and also our pathologists. And so I was going to ask, what do you need from those other team members and what do they need from you in order to work most effectively? You know, certainly in the definitive space, the, the radiation oncologists really want to know if their patient is going to be a candidate for chemotherapy. So it often involves, you know, medical assessment of their fitness and looking at some of their comorbidities as these patients tend to have a fair amount of comorbidities. You know, in the relapse setting, our surgeons often ask us whether, you know, they need to repeat a biopsy, for example, to determine, you know, an additional biomarker, in this case, often CPS pdl one score. So there's lots of questions that, that certainly go two ways. Talking a little bit more about the pdl one testing, how does the CPS pdl one test results influence your decisions for a treatment choice in head and neck cancer? Yeah, so this is um, it's a very important test, the CPS pdl one test, for several reasons. In the first instance, really, it's, it's about helping patients to decide on what their therapy options may be once they have suffered a relapse. Specifically, if they are CPS PDL1 positive, so it's if it's at least one or greater, then they do have the option of, of receiving pembrolizumab uh, on their own. And, and particularly if, if they have a high CPS PDL1 score, uh, in other words, above 20, you know, a lot of these patients will have had previous chemotherapy and radiation. Uh, which often comes with, you know, a, a quite high symptom burden. And, you know, they may not be interested in, in uh, receiving additional chemotherapy. So having the option of getting single-agent pembrolizumab is valuable to some patients. Although I must admit that my decision to use, you know, chemotherapy or not often actually involves uh, an assessment of their, their disease burden at the time of relapse, you know, the location of the tumor, the pace of disease. I often make a recommendation, not necessarily based on the PDL1 status as much as some of those factors I, I just mentioned. In fact, looking at my practice, I recently did an audit and uh, I seem to have a, a fairly strong preference of using a combination treatment in, in many of my first line patients. In terms of PDL1 testing, if you're going to use it to make treatment decisions, what time do you usually get those results? Is it before or after meeting the patient? Yeah, so it depends. You know, at the moment, uh, ordering of uh, CPS PDL1 uh, testing can be done really by any of the members of our head and neck team. And often it, it happens to be ordered by whoever saw the patient last that, you know, essentially detected the recurrence. And so it could be, you know, it could be the surgeon, could be the radiation oncologist, it could be, you know, myself. 
And sometimes, in fact, uh, it's it's ordered, uh, you know, at the time of a multidisciplinary discussion, often at a tumor board where, you know, we 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 have our pathologists there and, and we can kindly ask them to, to do the testing. And the turnaround seems to be pretty good. You know, I usually get the result within a couple of weeks, especially if the tissue is in-house. I would guess you would feel that's a pretty effective process, the way testing is ordered. I think it helps to have all members of the team aware of the test and and of its importance in terms of decision-making. So I think uh, awareness is an important variable here. And in terms of getting the test done, say, faster, would you see a benefit in testing some patients at an earlier stage of the disease in order for the result to be available upon recurrence? I think so. I think, um, you know, certainly for cases where they have a high risk of relapse, it may be uh, worthwhile to do reflexive testing on them so that when the recurrence does occur, there is, um, you know, you already have the available uh, information to, to help the patient make, you know, the appropriate decision. So I do think that uh, there is certainly a, uh, some merit, especially for the, for the high-risk uh, cases that come through. Is that something that you would do in your practice? Yeah. So currently we work with our, our pathologist and there is a reflexive testing on essentially any specimen that comes in to the pathology lab where it's clearly marked as metastatic disease. In other words, you know, a setting where it's no longer curable and, and first line metastatic treatment is in, is in order. But also uh, in some of the, the higher risk cases, you know, a high nodal disease or other risk factors that we've discussed with our pathologist. So what are the biggest advantages and challenges of using immunotherapy for head and neck cancer? I mean, uh, the obvious benefit is to patients, right? Um, You know, the fact that we now have immunotherapy available in the first and second line setting really uh, gives our patients the option of of having access to immunotherapy in, in any of those lines. And therefore, the, you know, the potential for some of these durable, you know, responses, especially earlier on in, in their disease. But, you know, they, they, do, they do not work for, for many patients, unfortunately, and, and we certainly still have a lot of, um, a lot of work to do in terms of uh, improving upon the current status. How do you see their use evolving in the future? You know, there are, at the moment, many ongoing clinical trials looking at uh, immunotherapy in earlier disease states still. So there's a number of trials going on looking at combination immunotherapy with definitive uh, chemotherapy radiation. There's also some trials looking at perioperative immunotherapy. And certainly some of the earlier data suggests that, you know, these trials will be interesting and and hopefully practice changing. So uh, certainly a space to look out, uh, you know, in the coming uh, few years as these trials report out. And to end off our discussion, are there any anecdotal cases you can share that kind of highlight the importance of the multidisciplinary team when it comes to treating patients with head and neck squamous cell carcinoma with immunotherapies? You know, at the moment, we have a number of clinical trials that we have available. And really getting patients on trial often is one of the better options for patients. And, you know, for a patient population like this with head and neck cancers, they are quite sick and their disease is often, you know, quite aggressive. And you know, it's it's very important that you have a sort of quick, efficient communication with your team members to determine, you know, do they need additional scans and, and biopsies or, or, you know, potentially uh, other interventions uh, with really the objective of, of trying to get them onto, you know, next line therapies, which, you know, sometimes involve immunotherapies on clinical trials. So we have a number of patients where, you know, we this sort of multidisciplinary 
uh, approach has been very effective at, at sort of streamlining the care and, and getting them onto the next line of, uh, of treatment. So really key, this multidisciplinary approach. And I suspect this is going to become even more important as immunotherapy moves potentially into earlier stages with uh, chemo radiation potentially, or even, you know, in the perioperative uh, setting. Yeah, well, thank you for that. And thanks again, Martin, for joining us on the podcast and take care. Okay, thank you so much.